All right, man. Welcome to uh, Serato Unscripted. Thank Just you. Blaze. Happy to be here. Happy to be here. A little tired, but I'm here. Such is the way with Austin, right? Yes. So, um, I mean, the first time actually I met you was uh, in, in Austin for the Serato Showcase we did probably oh, like wow. four years ago. Was that the one that was in that club where I was DJing upstairs? Uh -huh. It was like me and Natus. And That's right. I remember that. That was, that was a good night. That was that a good was night. That was a really good night, yeah. Yeah. You were rocking out with the SP1. The SP1, yeah. Yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that, uh, that might have been like... That was that was that was a cool time just for me because I think I, I guess was it four years ago, approximately. It might have been four, might have been even been five, maybe. But yeah, the uh, the um, it was just a good energy yeah. that whole South by, you know. It's um as they reduced the corporate presence here, it's gotten a bit more low key, which I think was needed because yeah. it was getting a little a little crazy. But that was like right before it got ultra corporate. You know, um, when you had people, companies that were sponsoring things that were cool, but then after a while, it was like, all right, now you got like Samsung taking over half the city and stuff like that. It got to be a little bit much. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of the events that are really worth going to are even unofficial South by things, like definitely off the off the strip or even yeah. on the strip, but yep. not you know sanctioned by them. Or yeah, it um that that was weird a, a, a weird thing like when the unofficial events started to outshine the actual official ones but they kind of did it to themselves to be honest um like i remember i had a showcase one year a good official one mm -hmm. that we uh me and uh my partner one of my partners alex uh Damashek, put together we used to do the house party thing in new york at webster hall before they closed and we decided to try and do one out here excuse me and we had an amazing lineup i can't even remember everybody that was there it was like on the headline side, you had like me, Manny Fresh with a live uh, band. Oh wow! Yeah, you had uh, Kevin Gates. Um, I can't remember everybody else. It was it was a crazy lineup, but it was being that it was an official event, you had to have bands. And, you know that's that's fine. I got you know that that was cool, but then they shut down our doors saying that the club was at capacity, and then I'm so I'm like, oh great, we're we're sold out already, awesome. And then I walk in and there's like a hundred people. Yeah. And the place holds like 700. Yeah, kind of kills the vibe. Right. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Because I, when I walked up, there was literally a line around the corner. So as somebody who, you know, as, as somebody who's hosting and put together, putting together an event, you're like, oh, great. I got a line around the corner. And then you walk in, there's nobody inside. Yeah. And I kind of feel like they made it so hard for people to participate in the official events that people just started doing their own thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that event we did with you was, was unofficial. Right. Um, and yeah, we had a bunch of people. I wanted to talk to you about that actually because Nate is from Jersey. Yeah, you're from Jersey. Yeah, the Jersey club sound. Mm -hmm. How you know? Did that? Did you grow up listening to it like that? Yeah, stuff? yeah, yeah. No, like it's funny. Like with Natus and Slink and all the, the kids, they're like all like my nephews. Yeah. You know, like so. It's funny actually mentioning. Speaking of Natus, like I had known him since he was like 13, 14. Oh shit! Yeah, I've known him for like. He was like the chubby kid. He always used to come around with the beats, you know. And funny thing is, I didn't realize that that was him. Like, I'd heard of Natus. I didn't realize that that was the kid that I knew when he, when he was little. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, growing up uh, in that time, like in that uh, that early '90s period, you know, we were Jersey was kind of forming its own thing. That was kind of like a amalgamation of. Chicago and Baltimore, you know, like what, our first big, I guess what you would call the prototypical Jersey club record 
was probably a taps a dick control pause. Okay. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was the B side of the original version of Shake That Ass Girl, but that's to my knowledge the first time that you heard the the the, the rhythm the boom. <laughs> That pattern came from that record, to my knowledge. Okay, I'd never heard a record with that pattern before that. Um, so it was real interest. It's, it's it's been really interesting to watch the younger generations take on that sound that we used to rock to when we were kids. Because I want to say back then I was maybe like fifteen. Right when like 16. when did that record come? I mean, I don't, I don't really know. Their control was. had to be like ninety three, maybe. Oh wow. 94, 93. And it's funny because I actually lost my, my copy of, of that, and I've tried to find one since, and it's damn near impossible to find. That is like, that rare? Yeah, like I've looked on Discogs, eBay. Randomly, sometimes you find rare records on Amazon. I've looked everywhere. Every couple of months, I'm like, hey, I need to find another copy of that 12-inch. No one's pre-pressed it or anything? No. Oh. You know what it is? Uh, the big record was uh, Shake That Ass. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, it was a label, I think it was called Music Station, um, licensed Shake That Ass, and then there were a zillion remixes of that. Uh -huh. So Dick Control kind of became the forgotten, you know, like we knew about it. Knew, they knew about it in the hood, but like in terms of like the Taps big hit, rest in peace actually, uh, the big hit was Shake That Ass. Shake That Ass, girl. That got a million repressings and a million remixes, but I've never seen Dick Control on another 12-inch except for that original pressing of Shake That Ass. Wow. Um, funny enough, that's actually my... The, so the first time that uh, my name was ever on a record, I was maybe 17, and uh, Mr. C... I, I, so I used to do a, a party uh, at this skating rink called, uh, called Skaters World. Like roller skating right? Yeah. Oh, dope. And what we would do is it would be skating from 9 to 12, and then from 12 to, I think, 2 or 12 to 1. 12 to 2, I think, we would open up this other area that was kind of like technically, I guess, the dining area for the skating rink. We would make that into a dance party, um, all ages. And uh, every big holiday, like it was Thanksgiving or, October, uh, Thanksgiving or um, Halloween or anything like that, we would do what we used to call eight to eights. And the eight to eight was a party that started at eight at night and went until eight in the morning. <laughs> wow. And you had like thousands of kids all underage. Wilding out. Yeah, just for 12 hours straight. <laughs> um, and it's, it's funny, like a lot of stuff came from that from, from those parties. Like, I mean, I, that's that was my rite of passage. Uh, Fetty Wops DJ, um, Big L, he used to, when he was like 12, he would just linger around the DJ booth and like, try to get on, you know, and he kind of became like the kid brother of the crew, so I would let him DJ. Now he's touring the world with, with, with Fetty. Um, one of the, actually, one of the artists that I had play our showcase, the 12 Rivers one the other night, um, one of the artists, his manager used to be one of our dancers at this party. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of crazy to just watch the progression, but back to the, the, the original point that I brought the party up. First time my name was ever on a record, 
um, we used to book some pretty big uh, acts there, um, which is kind of crazy looking back as kids at what we were doing. Like, we had Method Man come back at the height of Wu-Tang Mania, like right when Takal dropped. Oh, wow. We booked Meth. We had Red Man there. We had... Uh, um, one, one of the other big things that we did was we booked the night with um, DJ Mr. C. And uh, this was back when I think C was, I think when Wendy Williams had her radio show, I think at one point C was her DJ for the show. So we had booked C and Wendy Williams. And C had never heard Jersey Club before. So he comes. He's from? C's from Brooklyn. Brooklyn, okay. He never heard Jersey Club before. So him and Wendy walk in and... I'm doing, you know, uh, I'm, I'm DJing, and he hears me play Shake That Ass, the tap record, which is, like I said, what, the, the flip side of Dick Control. And he's like, dude, what the hell is this? Because he not only heard the record, but he saw the way the kids were reacting. He's like, I, I don't know what this is, but I need to get on it. So I, um, you know, told him what it was. I mean, I, I, at the time, we didn't even call it Jersey Club. I don't know what we called it back then. But I... Uh, he was like, yo, can you get me a copy of this? I'm like, sure, no problem. So we uh, stayed in touch. And I went to a record store around my way, bought a copy of uh, Shake That Ass for him, and uh, went to meet him. And this was, as a kid, this was like the most mind-blowing thing ever. Like, first of all, I'm just, I'm talking, I mean, like, I'm talking to Mr. C. Yeah. He asked me to come meet him to give him the record, and I had to drop it off at the Cold Chillin' offices. Oh, wow. And as That's somebody so cool. who grew up on the Juice Crew and Kane and Marley and everybody, like, yo, I'm at Cold Chillin', and I'm giving a record to Mr. C. Like, so I um, bought him a copy of it, and in return, they gave he gave me uh, a box of literally, like, every record that Cold Chillin' had ever put out from, wow. like, the Prism days all the way up until that point, which I guess was maybe 95 or whatever. What a catalog, man. Yeah, it was insane. But um, so I give him the record, and he makes what ended up becoming at that time like a classic uh, break record. That, that was like in the era of like nervous records where like Flex was doing the breakbeat records and Aviate was doing the breakbeat records. Kenny Dope. Right, Kenny yeah. Dope was doing his, his, his breakbeat records, and then C's was Shake That Ass. Shake that ass, girl, make that cool you Took the record he heard that night. He heard that he heard me play. He took no it over with it and made it and made this break record out of it. Um, and my and when you if you if you uh, on the label of the record, um, you know he shouts out a zillion people and I'm the last one. Like shout out to my man DJ Just from Jersey. And I'm like, dude, my name is on a record. <laughs> it was kind of one of the things that in I guess in my life or in my I guess I wouldn't even call it a career yet, but just you know at the start of things that made me feel like, oh wait a minute. Because as, as as when you're young like that, excuse me, especially in that era, you spent a lot of your time reading album credits, reading the shout outs and stuff like that. And now my name is on one. You know what I mean? So it kind of, it made me feel like I was that, like one step closer to actually making what I wanted to do a real thing. So that was, you were a DJ at the time. You yeah. Were, were you making beats? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've been making music since I can remember. Like, because my dad always, my dad was a, a jazz organist. So he always had 
synths and keyboards and Casio stuff around the house, you know, when I used to, when he wasn't looking, when, or when I thought he wasn't looking, <laughs> I would take his stuff and, uh, you know, and, and try to make music with it. And then Casio comes out with the SK-1. Was that the one with the four pads? That was the SK-5. Oh, so okay. they came out with the SK-1. A friend of mine had that. And then my best friend's sister, uh, that, that Christmas that the SK-5 came out, she got one. She had it for all of like a day. <laughs> and she lived across the street from me, so I jacked her SK-5 and that was it. And I guess that was maybe 80... 89, 90, I forget what you it was. It was just before the 90s because I got that same keyboard as a kid. Okay. And I remember like just freaking out that you could record your voice into it. Exactly. And just, bah, 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 and bah, just bah. And yeah. stutter it and loop it and whatnot. <laughs> so, and around the same time, like Gemini was coming out with their first mixers that had samplers. So that was, you know, it was, uh, that was kind of like the beginning of the end for me. It was like, you know, before that, all I had was, keyboards and drum machines but now all of a sudden i have something that i can take my records and put them into and, and, and looping them and also around that same time there was that summer i guess it was summer of 88 i think um i was staying with my aunt jenny uh who lives in virginia i used to stay with her in the summers and she took me to a might have been the whiz i forget what store it was but she bought me um Nation of Millions, my public, oh, public enemy, enemy record. yeah, and she bought me. Uh, he's the DJ on the rapper, Jazzy Jeff, yeah. Will Smith, yeah. That's kind of cool that we're right here. Yeah, right. At, at, uh, <laughs> Jeff's right in the next room. <laughs> yeah. But um, that was a life changing summer for me, um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, that was like the first hip hop double album, and you know, one album that was Will's and one album that was Jeff's, and there were two routines that Jeff had on his album. One was um, Jive Rhythm Tracks House Party Style. That's the joint. Yeah, with uh, with Opus. Uh, what was it? Opus. Mandre. Yeah, the Mandre Opus with the uh, with the Jive Rhythm Tracks drums yeah. on it, and he's doing the uh, the the the, uh, the breakdown. The and that, and then the live at Union Square uh, routine, um, when he's cutting up dance to the drummer's beat and got to be real and Apache. That was part of what made me say, okay, this is what I want to do. DJ? Yeah, like for the rest of my life. This this is where I need to be. Mm. This is what I want to do. And then, obviously, the Public Enemy album was amazing. But when I got back home to my mom's house, and now I have this Casio, and like the, uh, we were never allowed to go into the attic as kids. I think just because she, the steps were steep, she probably just didn't want to spawn down the steps. But I remember sneaking into the attic and finding a box of 45s. And in this box of 45s was like James Brown, Funky Drummer. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, basically all the classic James Brown breaks, all the uh, a lot of classic Isaac Hayes stuff. You know, stuff that most of our parents had, you know, back then, at least around my world. Excuse me. And eventually I'm, as I'm, I have this Casio. And I had this box of 45s. And then I'm realizing that a lot of these breaks that are on this Public Enemy album are in this box of 45s. And that's when it all kind of first started to really make sense for me. Like, oh, they're using these songs and they're rapping on these. Like, I remember having the Funky Drummer 45 and the Grunt 45. And we, like, that's the drums from Rebel Without a Pause. And that's the horns from Rebel Without a Pause. And it was like, as a 
10, 11 year old, that's especially in that era. Oh, yeah. It was mind blowing. That's pre internet. No one's telling that's you. That's what that. I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. That, that, it, it's different now where it's like, you know, you can just Google yeah, who whatever or, or who sampled yeah. or Discogs or YouTube or whatever. Back then, it was all organic discovery. That must have been such a like a such a like an amazing feeling of inspiration. Right, like, I can do this or right. Know. So finding these breaks, like being inspired by the routines on Jeff's album, and then finding these breaks that Public Enemy was using, having the SK Five, and then De La Soul for their first album had what we would now call an EPK. We used to have a local video show called the uh, Video Music Box. That was uh, hosted by a, a guy by the name of Ralph McDaniels and uh, Lionel Martin, and they they actually created a lot of the early rap videos. Like they had the show that aired them, but they were also directing and producing a lot of these videos. And that was kind of like our uh, homework after school, like three thirty p.m. Oh, sh video music boxes, or you know, like that's where we got our our knowledge from, and. Um, I remember uh, De La Soul, like I said, had what we would now call an EPK. It was basically like a five to ten minute video just about their process and who they were and about the album. And I think it's actually on YouTube now. But at one point, um, I think it's Prince Paul and True Goy are in their studio. And there's an SK5 on top of the turntables. Oh, wow. So just, again, imagine being a 10-year-old kid, 11-year-old kid who's discovering all of this. And then the few things that you have at your house, De La Soul has in their place. And you're thinking, oh, I have the same thing they do. I can I can do this. You know what I mean? Um, and at the same time, you're discovering what breaks are and discovering drum breaks. And all these seminal rap albums are coming out at that time. It was like the perfect storm. You know, like, um, it was, I, it was, it was a, I, I, feel, I feel like there were two great times to be 11 years old or 10 years old. And it was, I feel like it was like 88 and then like, 2006 or seven, like the advent of like Ableton and computers or the computer hardware actually catching up with the software because the software has always been capable. The computers just always weren't capable of keeping up with what the software could do. Right. You know, so in terms of like discovery, I feel like for me, you know, that era, me as a kid and then fast forward to, the, you know, like, like I said, when you get to Ableton and uh, time stretching and whatnot and not that that technology wasn't available before, but now it's available cheaply and readily available. Like you can, for the first time, like go buy like a six hundred dollar, you know, netbook, laptop, and go make an album. Mm. That's you really know? yeah. I, I, they, people talk about the MPC in that similar similar way because no one could really afford an SP twelve hundred. Those right. were prohibitively expensive. Yes, but the MPC was like something that people could afford. You could actually get. Yeah, yeah. for me, uh, the entry point was um, the ASR ten. Oh, yeah. That's we, what Timbaland and yeah. Kanye and lots of people use yeah, that. Yeah, Al, too. Um, yeah. For me, uh, it was RZA. RZA, right. I, there was an old uh, local rap magazine called... Uh, I think it was Rap... It was, there was, we had a magazine called Rap Pages, and I think this interview was in Rap Pages. Um, yeah, I remember were, Rap Pages. When they were talking about... Uh, or they were interviewing RZA. Mm. And they were asking him about his process, and he just kept going on and on about the ASR 10. And I was like, all right, whatever that is, that's what I need. You know, and my same Aunt Jenny, the one that I brought up earlier, who, uh, you know, who I used to stay with in the summers and used to buy me albums, uh, she bought me an ASR 10, wow. uh, you know, at some point in high school. And uh, that was another life changer, you know. Um, 
that's also when I first realized one of the mantras that I live by today, which is it's not the machine, it's it's the it's the mind. Because I swore that I when I got this ASR ten, I was going to be the new RZA. Yeah. And I'm trying to learn how to make beats on this thing and they are not RZA caliber beats. And that's when you know that's when I'm like, oh wait a minute, there's more to it. It's not just the it's not just the keyboard you got, it's what you, you know what you put into it. For sure. It's funny, um I, I think I, I may I may have this wrong, but um there was an interview in like Scratch magazine or something. Uh-huh. And it, I think you talked about the first time you used Logic, right? And the beat that came out of Logic, um, I'm not again. This might be oh, uh, Streets is Streets is what? Yeah, Streets is what? Yeah, the, the J record. So, yeah, that was um, an experiment. You know, um, I was making some some money. Um, I could afford to just at this point buy whatever I wanted in terms of gear. You know, a lot of guys would go and they make their first bit of money and they you know go buy jewelry and cars and whatnot. I was just living in Sam Ash and. Manny's music all day, you know, buying keyboards. And I mean, my philosophy was, you know, I might never, I might only use this keyboard once, but if I get one great sound out of it, you know, it, it was worth, it was worth the investment. So I was just really just a gear nerd. You know, and I've always been a tinkerer and a kind of a hacker by nature. So um, I, because I started out making beats in a, in a, in computers. Oh, really? Yeah, like my first sampler was a, was a Roland JS30. Uh, which was a terrible machine, terrible, terrible. It was one of the most terrible machines you could ever <laughs> even attempt to use. But I had one, and um, I used to sequence it with a with um, our family PC with a program by Creative Labs called uh, Creative Workshop. And then you know I, I went through the whole route. You know I went through the, the ASR phase and the MPCs and everything else. But I was always just trying different things. So I started thinking back to, you know, my early computer days and I was like, you know, I think I was one of the few people in hip hop that was using Pro Tools at the time. A lot of the uh, early adopters of Pro Tools were like the freestyle and dance dudes um, who were doing dance music. Hip hop wasn't really embracing uh, Pro Tools like that at the time. So... And back then, you know, now every, every sequencer has MIDI and audio. Back then it was like if... If you were doing MIDI, you were using Logic. Um, if you were using, if you're doing audio, you were, you were doing Pro Tools. Pro Tools made a uh, a uh, PCI card that was a sampler. It was called a sample cell, and that was basically what you used if you were trying to sample things in Pro Tools. And I had uh, basically finagled getting a Logic and Pro Tools to talk to each other through, what was it back then? Yeah. The IAC bus. Oh, you wow. Could route, you could, something that's built into Macs, but you could get different apps or DAWs to talk to each other. Like I said, it's something we take for granted now. For sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like in 2000, this was not something that, you know, people were doing. Yeah. That shit was hella hard. Right. Yeah. I had uh, basically... Had this idea of trying to build again something that we take for granted now um, a mobile Pro Tools rig, which was not something that existed back then. So I had like spent all this money on a PowerBook G3 because uh, the Max. It's funny the exact it's the exact opposite of what it is now. They used to be very modular back then. Mm. You could swap out CD drives, swap out hard drives, swap out extra batteries for your laptop. Like a PC, right? Yeah. So it was a very modular approach, and this company called Magma started making what uh what was it called the the expansion chassis which would allow you to install extra pc car or pci cards into your desktop and then they made an adapter for it to work 
on a PowerBook G3. So I'm like, wait a minute. If I can connect or if I can uh, install this expansion chassis and have it run off the laptop, then in theory, I should be able to install PCI cards and run Pro Tools on a laptop. I remember, I, you know, I called DigiDesign, and they're like, "No, that, no, that's not going to work." They want, they don't want to tell you that's going to work. Yeah, and and they they flat out told me it wasn't. And I remember being at like Sam Sam Ash Pro, and all these places are like, "No, that's that's never going to work." A week later, I had it working. That's dope. So around that time uh, that I was building this mobile Pro Tools, I'm like, "All right, let's see if we can make a beat out of it." What was that sampler that Pro Tools had? Oh, sample cell. So I went and bought a sample cell card. Uh, Bought Logic. I mean, I, I've always, I've been buying Logic probably since like version three. I just never really, really, really used it like that until around this time. And um, so I get a bunch of samples and I make this beat on Sample Cell. And it was like, it was, Logic was triggering samples in Pro Tools. So all the sequencing was in Logic and all the audio was happening in Pro Tools. Thought it was a cool idea, put it on a cassette. You know, and gave it to somebody, and that's really what made Jay start taking me seriously. Because I had been around the guys for maybe about a year, in a few different capacities. Like I was engineering a Mills album, oh. a Mills artist they had signed uh, to Rockefeller through Sony. So I was engineering her album and kind of helping her put her album together. I had done a record or two for Memphis Bleak and Benny Siegel, but Jay was not paying me any mind. And when he heard that beat, he was like. Oh, that's the same kid? All right, with the dreads? All right, cool, yeah. So he, they take my 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 uh, cassette and dump it to a two-inch reel and demoed it right off the cassette. And then they were like, yo, Jay wants to meet you tomorrow. And the thing that me and my uh, my manager, Nason, we always used to say was like, if me and Jay ever get in the same room, will be good. It was just a matter of getting to that point where he wanted to be in a room with me. So after he heard that beat, he he sent a message like, "Are right, yeah, tell, tell him to come to baseline. Look, if I shoot you, I'm brainless. Different toilet, same shit. And I'm sick of explaining this. I'm waiting on the raining. My nigga is the plaintiff. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Fucked up, ain't it? I should have known better, and I plan to. But dog, they be taking me out of my zone like a nigga with a handle. I sat back and watched it. Put the gas back in the closet. I try to tie my hands like an Iraqi hostage. That niggas take shots. And that's when we started everything. Wow. Um, and then... So that was the first beat you made for Jay-Z? Yeah, it was, wow. was that. And then the, uh, he asked me, he asked for me to come to the studio the next day. We met. And um, I had, uh, I brought my MP with me. I just didn't know what was going to happen. That was a 2000? Yeah, it was a 2000 back then, yeah. So I brought the 2000 with me. And... Um, while I was, while, I mean, I've told the story a million times online, but it's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, so he's in the, this is when he was just starting the Dynasty album. So he's in the booth doing the vocals. He's recording uh, vocals to um, Parking Lot Pimpin' from the Dynasty album. And so I just threw on my headphones, plugged in the MP, loaded up some samples, and I made another beat while he was in the booth. And he was only in there for about 10 minutes. So he comes out, you know, nice to meet you. You know, I want to make a sequel. The Streets is watching. You know, I, I love what you did, blah, 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 blah. They play it for me. Um, they play what he had recorded, you know, to the cassette that I gave them. So then I'm like, all right, great. So then I, I'm like, hey, check this out. And I play him what I had just made making in the headphones. Um, and he's like, 
he immediately just starts, you know, going in. Like, you know, Jay, he doesn't write things down. He just kind of mumbles to himself. And then eventually those mumbles turn to word or to, to flows, and then the flows turn to actual words. And he starts doing that. And I'm kind of just like, what is he doing? I don't know what's going on. And then uh, eventually he starts actually rhyming. Um, so the same way he was tripping, like, when did you, because he was like, yo, when did you make this? And I'm like, right now. He's like, but I was only in the booth for 10 minutes. I'm like, yeah, I made it while you were in the booth. So you made this in 10 minutes? And I'm like, and I'm like, yeah. So he's kind of tripping off that. But then I'm tripping off the fact that I just watched this dude write a song <laughs> in his head without writing anything down, you know. And then so he's like, yo, can you lay this beat down now? I'm like, of course. She so said, all right, cool. Check this out. We're going to book this studio out indefinitely. The next room over there is going to be your room. This is where I'm going to be recording. We're going to bring all our artists in here. Stick around. I want to make you a star. Good? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say no to that? Right. And it was just kind of like, it was just, it, it just happened that quickly. You know, it was like, he was just impressed with the fact that I worked as quick as I did. That's baseline? Yeah. And he was like, stick around, I'm going to make you a star. And I'm like, okay. And then three and a half years later, I ended up owning baseline. Oh, wow. Yeah, which was even more surreal. Um, yeah, I ended up, uh, it was built by uh, uh, one of the big homies, um, OG Wan. Uh, built baseline, um, and I, to my to my recollection, I think he initially actually knew Dame and Biggs. He didn't know Jay as well, but him and Jay ended up becoming really good friends. And his thing was when Jay retired, he was like the fake retirement, you know, around the time of uh, <laughs> I guess after Blueprint Two or whatever. Yeah. Um, Mom was like, "All right, well, if Jay's done, I'm done. You want to buy it?" And I'm like. And I had the money, you know, and he was like, you know, I remember he, he he sat me down and he was just like, yo, so listen, there's a lot of people I can sell this studio to. At the time, Baseline was like the hottest hip hop studio in New York. Like it was kind of like a, a mythical place. Yeah, Mecca. Yeah. And um, he was like, I can sell it to somebody else for a lot more money, um, but I feel like they won't respect what we've built. I know you will. You, you're a part of what we built. I'd rather give it to you and I'll give it to you, for, you know. I'm not gonna say the number, but it was a very. Looking back, it was a, it was a low number. Yeah, but he was just like, I, he was just like I know you'll re you'll respect you know uh, the legacy. You're part of the legacy. I'd rather give it to somebody who was part of it than just sell it to a random person. Yeah. and I'm never gonna get into the music business again. So boom, go for it. And then a few years later, he got back into the music business and opened <laughs> up Rock the Mike Studios, and then called me and was like, "You want to partner with us?" But I was just like, ah, looking back, maybe I should have done it. Um, cause Rock the Mic was literally right around the corner from Baseline. You know, he kept he he said he wasn't going to do it. He did, but he did keep his word and reached out because he was like, "Listen, I'm getting back in because this is when Jay came out of retirement." So he's like, "Well, if Jay's back back rapping, then I'm back in the music business." Uh, you want to partner up, get rid of Baseline, um, and we'll do this new studio called Rock the Mic. I'm, I'm a very sentimental person. I just and I, I'm I'm very probably to a fault. Like, it would have just felt weird to me to abandon Baseline because that was kind of like, even though I had already been in the business for a while, that was like my real entry point into things. So it was kind of like abandoning part of your history. Yeah, I could see that. And I didn't want to do that. So I, I kept it. Like I said, in, in the end, I ended up, I don't say I lost money, um, but it was never a huge money maker, you know? Um but it allowed me to just do what I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it. You know what I mean? Like I, I went from sleeping next to an NPC 
every night, you know, in a in a studio apartment to owning this place. So it's like letting go of like one of your kids almost. You know what I mean? Like, so I I I, I never I, I kept baseline until the very very end. Like, my lease was up in two thousand nine, I think, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. But I um, I was a great tenant. The bills were always paid. The rent was always paid on time. There were never any incidents. There were any issues. And the building management that owned uh, the building that Baseline was in, they owned a few other buildings that had studios in them. And I guess there was always a th you know typical musician stuff, you know, starving artists can't pay the rent on time kind of thing. So they were they dealt with that a lot. With us, they never dealt with that. So even after the lease was up, they were like, "Stay, figure it out." You know, like we know that the money's gonna be there at the end of the month, no matter what. So I rode out baseline for two years with no lease wow. in Manhattan. Um, and then I, finally I figured out what my next move was going to be in terms of studios. And we finally shut it down. That was a sad day. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I Definitely. mean, what was it like at the peak baseline time, you know? Man. Um, I mean, you had everyone there, right? Literally, yeah. Everybody. Like, it was, it was we kind of had like a, it was a schedule. You know, like, not a written schedule, but it was just... Uh, we had our regular rotation and routine every day where, like, Bleak was an early bird, so he'd show up around 10 a.m. Hove would show up around 2 p.m. State property guys would start trickling in around 5-ish. Dipset comes along. They would start showing up around 7 or 8. BNC would always show up at, like, 4 a.m. He's from Philly, so. Yeah, so he would take that drive. Yeah. Um, call us, like, at 1 a.m., like, yo, I'm on the way. I'm like, bro, I was just going to sleep. <laughs> Damn, all right, cool. So it was like literally a it was a twenty four hour factory of just creativity, you know. And uh, I was, you know, one of the things that I always say is you don't know that you're creating history when you're making it. You're just doing it, you know. <coughs> Excuse me. You don't know that you're creating history when you're making it. You're just in the process and doing what you got to do, and then turn around and ten years have passed. Yeah, you know, and. Uh, People still care about something you did when you were 21, 22 years old. It was um, forever. Yeah, it's 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 kind of wild. Um, it took me a minute to realize the uh, the impact of what we built mm. collectively. You know, um, at the time, like I said, we were just all just we were just doing what we were doing. Yeah, you know, I it uh, I think the uh, one of the most interesting parts of it was watching everybody inspire each other you know um what's the old saying uh steel sharpens steel yeah so when you had this rotation that i was breaking down a few minutes ago and it's like you walk into one room and you know into the main room and jay is writing freeway here's what he's doing and freeze goes back to a corner with some headphones and he's writing then bleak comes in and he's like Here's that, and then he goes in, and then I come in and play a beat for somebody, and then Ye walks in and plays a beat, and then Ye hears my beat, and he's like, nah, I'll be right back. <laughs> so kind of competitive in a way? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Or I, just inspiration? I th for me, it was more inspirational. Mm -hmm. I think there was definitely an aspect of competition there, like, and that, you know, just without getting into the specifics, there were definitely a lot of artists who were trying to outdo each other, sometimes with good intentions, sometimes with not the best intentions. Sure. Um, I never really came at things from a competitive standpoint, I think because specifically at that time, I'm, when it came to our circle, I'm on top of the world. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm 
I'm literally working on seven albums at once. I don't have. I don't need to be competitive. My yeah. my check has already been cut. You're confident in your in your work. Exactly. So for me, it was definitely more of an inspirational thing. Um, but the one thing that I do realize is that, or that I've come to realize over the years is that some people did look at that as as, as a competitive thing, and I was never really trying to outdo anybody. You know, I was again. I, I was too busy to be worried about that. Like some of the conversations, like I remember, like people would think that me and Kanye were sitting there, like mean mugging each other. I'm like, no, he used to call me, like, yo, how did you get your drums to do this on this record, or how did you get the horns to cut through the way you did? Because I'm ha I'm working on this beat right now and I can't get my horns. Like, I'd call him, like, yo, what made you think to chop this record this way? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, those were the kind of conversations that we had. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, I still don't understand how you did the Touch the Sky beat with for Kanye. <laughs> like, the way the, the horns, like this, I mean, this is, it, I don't even know how you got to that tempo to make it work like that. So, going back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of time stretching and whatnot, there was a box, uh, funny enough, it was a Roland box. Uh, the Roland VP9000, if I'm not mistaken, which was... You know, it never really got it just, its just due. Um, the engine for the VP9000, if I'm not mistaken, ended up becoming the basis for the V-Synth, which did do well for Roland. But the VP never, you know, never really took off like that. But um, the VP9000 was basically, what's, how, what, what can I equate it to? It was Ableton in a box. Okay. In terms of real-time warping and things like that. But this is back in 2005. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you had samplers that had that had time stretch, it, they, it sucked. You know, the VP9000 was the first time that you could be like, let me just turn this knob and all of a sudden it's it's an octave higher, or, you know, but but the tempo isn't changing or you know, let me turn this knob and all of a sudden now it's playing in halftime, but the pitch isn't changing. Um That sounds good. Yeah, and it, it, it sounds good. Yeah. You know, like it it was the first time stretch machine that just sounded as good as it did. And um, going back to what I was saying about how I would buy a machine and use it once, yeah. And that was the the VP nine thousand. The only record I've ever actually done on the VP nine thousand was Touch This Guy. Oh. I sequenced it on the MP. Um, the drums, yeah, yeah the drums and the tr triggering everything on the MP, and the VP nine nine thousand was the sampler. Wow. Um, and it worked. Like I said, I, I it, it's funny because um. I don't remember what these guys' positions Roland, at Roland were, but they were pretty high up at the time, and some kind of VPs. And they wanted to meet with me because they knew I used a lot of their products, so they came by the studio. And they saw me with a VP9000, which they were like, oh, you actually have one of those? I'm like, yeah, dude, this thing is, is it's amazing, you know? Um, Roland have made so many things like that, right? Like, right, yeah. The 808. Yeah, know? exactly. You know, and then I had the V-Synth right next to it, and they're like, well, why do you have a VP9000 and a V-Synth? And I'm like, well, should I not? You know, but that's when I learned that they built the V-Synth on the VP9000 engine. So anything that I could have done on, that I was doing on the VP, I could have done on the V-Synth. Uh -huh. And had the synthesizer capabilities as well. Oh. But yeah, so the, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I ever used the VP on. I think it was just, it was, in terms of stuff that came out, it was just Touch the Sky, I think. Okay, then um, another beat question, if you yeah. don't mind. The Freeway All Right. Right. So that's that's a replay of of Mystic Brew. Mystic Brew, Ronnie. That was it, Ronnie Foster? Yeah. Which is the electric relaxation yes. side of the thing. So tell tell me about that beat. Like you do have a, a wide range of different styles, right? But that one 
<clears throat> to me, kind of stands out. So the idea to use that sample was actually um, hip hop was our A and R back then. Hip that was hip's idea, but hip didn't like what I did with it. He, I think, he was more so thinking about recreating the actual tribe record, like getting the brethren drums and just kind of just flipping it, you know. Sure. And um, when we first had the conversation, he's like, "Yo, we should flip electric relaxation." I'm like, "Okay." So I go and do what I do, and then he's like, "No, that's not what I meant," you know. I, it's about just the loop. Yeah, I think he just was thinking more about looping it. This world's a crazy place filled with such misery. I wipe it drops from my face. My wife's mama's having problems. My child is having problems. Don't know how I can solve her. We did it originally for Alan Anthony, and uh, who was in a group that we had signed called uh, Christian. So Alan went solo. We do this record called All Right. And I remember Dame coming to the studio one day and he's like, yeah, this is dope. Let's do another version. It was actually Dame's idea to do a Freeway version as well. So Freeway came in and wrote his version around what Alan had originally saw. Just blaze. I went from the ghetto to the ghetto when I'm back again. And we doing it back and forth bro, with a gang of thugs. My, my hood passport, fresh from the airport, I'm back again. And not your men. I'm from a block with might your pops, no chance, ambulance can't save your kin. Smoke, burn, reaper, chill in my spot instead of making some lot drink leaders a gin. The record was finished in LA. It was an engineer named Jean Marie Horvat. That's one of my favorite sound, like, I've, I've one of my favorite sounding records sonically, like that I've done. Jean Marie destroyed that mix. Um, he, uh, what did we mix that on? I think it was, it was an SSL 9000. Um, yeah, he killed that mix. And you know, actually, funny now that I think about it, I can uh, the inspiration behind the way I did that beat. If you go back and listen to Glenn Lewis, Don't You Forget It. Okay. Oh, uh, hold on. Let me, I'm just going to find it now. Hold yeah, on. the benefits of technology. Yep. Uh, actually, I probably have it in my Apple Music already. Glenn Lewis, he's from Toronto, right? You know what? Yeah, he was. So. You hear that lead synth? Oh, yeah. So. Uh, oh, yeah, totally. I hear it. That, yeah, it was. Um, so I, remember, I actually called um, the dudes that produced it, um, Dre and Vidal. We were cool, so I called them like, "Yo, where's that synth from? I need that." <laughs> and it was a keyboard I had the whole time. It was, a, it was as funny enough. It was a rolling keyboard. It was an expansion card for the JV twenty eighty. So I called them. I think it was the vintage synth uh, expansion card. So I called them like, "Yo, I need that sound." And they're like, "Oh, dude, you got it already. We saw it in your studio last night. It's this, this, this." <laughs> So then I actually the first they were the first ones I sent to beat like yo I found the patch boom people that I did yeah so they gave me the blessing yo that's, that's hard all right cool I'll work with it the the feel of that record was definitely inspired by the Glenn Lewis record stop um do the record for Alan Anthony do the freeway version um and the, one of the things like one of the what ifs that I that that haunts me is what if Alan's version had actually gotten a proper push because I feel like once Freeway's version happened the label shot. A video to both versions. They shot a, vi a video for 
Allen's version. They shot a video for Freeway's version. But all the money went behind Freeway's version. Mm. Um, I think just because Freeway had that much momentum at the time. Mm. Coming off of Rock the Mic, you know, 1-900 Hustler and all those records. Great um, records. Yeah, he just had the momentum behind him. So Allen's thing kind of just fell to the wayside, unfortunately. But yeah, that was uh, that's one of my favorites, personally. Uh, probably also the first time that I handed in a record that was like five and a half minutes long. Because <laughs> at the end, like the, the, half the record is just Alan, da, 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 and I'm playing the strings, and I'm. And the thing is, like a lot of times, you know, as producers, we just try different arrangements just to see what sticks and what doesn't. I fell in love with the arrangement. I'm like, I'm not shortening it. That's like, tough. You could do that. And they were like, just know that at the time, standard for radio was was like four minutes and 20 seconds. They're like, we, this has to be 420. We'd like it to be 340, but at the most, it, it has to be 420. I'm like, no. I I was too close to it. I couldn't take anything out. That's incredible that you have that that ability to have that artistic you know, decision, right. final decision. Yeah, you know, it's just like, it, it's, I guess nowadays it's easier for somebody to just take a file and be like, all right, we're cutting your song for yeah. you. Back then it wasn't an easy thing to do, you know, but I think also at the time it was just, you know, I had, I think, proven that at that point that like my crazy creative ideas would sometimes work. Yeah. You know, so if I really was adamant about something, they'd be like, all right, let it rock. If he wants it to be five minutes, five and a half minutes, cool. You know, but it, it, it and it did work. Um, Kind of the same thing I did with the, that game in Nas and Marsha record. It's like nine minutes long. Oh, wow. There's more singing than there was rapping through the whole record. But you know what it was? We, when we had the choir, uh, what I did was I, like there's a, what, a, a game verse, a Nas verse, and another game verse. And I had brought in a choir to just do the hook. So what I did was I looped the record for nine minutes just to let the choir warm up. Mm. It wasn't intended to be a nine-minute song. It was just... <laughs> Let them warm up. You know, I'll loop this up. I'll be back. Let them get their parts together. And it sounded so good. Like the the warm up that they were doing just got better and better and better. So I was just like, you know, let's just make it a nine minute record. And I think some people were confused because when Game and Nas started talking about the record publicly, they're like, yeah, we got a nine minute record with Just Blaze. So people are thinking, oh, they're rapping for nine minutes. And it was like, no, they actually rap for three. <laughs> and then there's just the choir singing for six minutes. But it felt good. Yeah. Sometimes you got to do things just because they feel good. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and. There's some other records uh, like like the J Electronica joint right. and and the Compton record uh, right. with Kendrick. Right, so one of the analogies I always give people, what we were doing on the Dynasty album, we figured it out on the Blueprint. So it was like we were trying this. The trying Blueprint to... is crazy though. I mean, right. like I think I mean, sorry to jump in here, but yeah. it feels like the Blueprint was a real big turning point for a lot of people. It's a turning point for all of us. Yeah, you know, but stylistically, musically, that sound that we were trying to figure out. Or that we nailed on a blueprint. We first started trying to figure out on the Dynasty album, definitely in terms of the vocal samples, the soul samples, mm. and stuff like that. I say that to say, what I was trying to figure out on Compton, I figured out on Exhibit C, which is funny because Compton ended up coming out after Exhibit C. Right. Oh well, that's politics more. No, it was just the timing. It was just timing. Yeah. But the original demo of Compton was cut. When did uh? Good Kid, Man City, was that 2012, I think it came yep, out? Yeah, 2012. Yeah, and Exhibit C is me saying, oh, nine, yes, we did that in 09. So, yeah, I made the beat for Compton. We wrote the original Compton record. With Kendrick then? No, Kendrick wasn't involved yet. Oh. It was originally um, a record for Dre. Oh. Um, It was... Detox? Yeah, the Detox, yeah, the, like the second round of Detox records. Um, 
And it was put together by me, this dude that he had A&R for him at the time, uh, named Brandon, Brandon uh, Lamella. It was me, Brandon, Sly, who was um, doing a lot of singing for Dre at the time. And Hayes. Hayes was an uh, artist who was signed to Dre and Timberland. Oh, wow. some, some kind of partnership thing that never really came to fruition that they had. I think the idea was to start a label called Chairman of the Board that was going to be a Dre and Timberland thing. And Hayes was working with both of them. So me, Hayes, Sly, and Brandon originally put Compton together. Um, actually, Brandon was the one who came through with the Formula 4 record that had the sample on it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, so I put the beat to... But Brandon gave it to me for another sample that was on the album. And I was like, yeah, that's cool, but listen to this. And he's like, what's that? And then I made the beat, and he was like, oh. But, <laughs> I love, the, love it when that happens. Yeah, but it was that But that was, like like I said, you know, I put I, we, we put the song together. We came up with the whole hook for Compton and, you know, the, the idea for the, for the concept of the record. And then Kendrick maybe came into the picture like a year and a half later. There's a video that might still be floating around when we thought we were done with Detox the last time that I was involved. <laughs> and there's a video of me and Dre in the studio, and I'm like, yo, Detox is done. It's coming. I think I might have even said it's coming out on Halloween or something. And then I was like, and, and, uh, and you might just see a unicorn too. Something I said something crazy about unicorns <laughs> and detox. I don't remember, but that same night was the night was the first night that Kendrick and Dre met. Wow! And, so you were there, yeah. And th uh, they wanted uh, Dre just wanted him to just basically like you know I got some beats, write some songs, you know. So Dre left him his devices with a bunch of of stuff that I had, and that was one of the things that they did that first night. Um, but. Exhibit C was me mastering what I was trying to figure out when I was making the beat wow. for Compton. If you go back and listen to me, you hear there's a lot of the long sustained notes and stuff like that, like the taking the one, cross my heart that I love her. Oh, if you listen to Compton, dun, 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 dun. I was just trying to figure it out, you know, and then, and then we nailed it on Exhibit C. Well, the, and those, those kind of, that phrasing is kind of interesting too. It's not... Um, it's, is, is it 4-4 four, four timing or is it loops like no. kind of like a three-bar loop? Yeah, it's kind of like a six-bar loop, if I'm not mistaken. Not many people do that. I'm mean, the only other person I can think of that I know that does things has done thing like, things like that is Dilla. It's Dilla, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if you go back to what record we discussed earlier, um, Freeway, All Right. Yeah. You know, the Mistake Brew, that's a three-bar loop, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So hard to mix. Eh? Yeah. Hovey Baby... <laughs> Jay's Hopefully Baby, I think, is a five-bar loop. Okay. Um, I, I got to a point where I was just bored. Right. Like, why does it have to be 4-4? Four, four? Now, granted, yes, it does make it harder to mix. kind of makes it harder to dance to, whatever, but I'm not... Whatever. It's in, it's interesting, though. Yeah. Like, it gives it... Like I mean, it's still four... It's still, you know, you can dance easy yeah, to it. Yeah, but, but it's... It gives the it count is, yeah. is different. It's, it makes it harder to mix. But even, even from... You know, like, as somebody who used to be a dancer... You know, sometimes when you're not expecting it to be a five-bar thing and you're about to do your power move and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no, I missed it. Oh, no, the break didn't happen yet. Yeah, can't do the electric slide to this one. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's other really great records. I think very memorable records like Andre 3000, um, Hey Ya. Yeah. It's got like the extra bar or whatever. Mm -hmm. doesn't seem to bother anybody. No, yeah, no, yeah. It's, you know, you know I, I feel like we just, we, 
every few years it needs to be the production just needs to be shaken up do yeah. something a little bit different hey i was definitely also one of those points for sure yeah and i think i also feel like that's a really important thing just for music for people to understand about music you know like why does this song make me feel this way it's like there's a kind of like another part to it no there's something that i always tell people or that i always talk about rather when these kind of conversations come up you know like the average person doesn't know what goes into making a song they just know how a song makes them feel mm. And as producers and as artists, our job is just to make people feel things. You know what I mean? Like whether it's feeling sad, happy, triumphant, inspired, whatever it is. Our job as musicians is just to make people feel things. Mm -hmm. You know, like the average person doesn't care about what goes into making a song because they don't understand it. They don't need to. No. Ultimately. And it's actually that reminds me when you just talked earlier about when you when you first met Jay-Z and you talked about how you made a beat right there with him. Right. And he wrote right there. Right. There's so much magic in that. That first moment, you know, like, and I, I'm, maybe you can speak to that uh, when you first, you know, open up a, a find a record, or you open up a, right. a keyboard, you get a new keyboard, and you start making something, and you make you can make something really fast, right? And often those th those first kind of like inhib inhibition kind of moments of just going in. I'll spend two weeks working on a song, right? But that's but most of the best songs come into existence within five to ten minutes, you know. After we get a song to a certain, so it's like. I'll have this random idea. Artist comes in, they're like, oh, I got something for that, you know? And we, that initial magic happens, and it generally happens very quickly when it's really, you know, uh, when it's uh, the spontaneity of it, you know, is a, it's, it's, a, it's a very important thing. Mm -hmm. Records that I've tried to, like, come up with the groove for for two weeks don't work, you know, in my experience. But when you just have that initial spark, I think about all my biggest records... I had I executed what I had to do within five ten minutes. The artist had something ready for it within five ten minutes, and then we maybe spent two weeks refining. Sure, that you know what I mean. But the initial creation, there's something about that sponta spontaneous energy about the producer having the idea, the artist having the idea, the engineer having an idea, you know, and then somebody else walking in and being like, "Oh, what about this?" and us being like, "Oh, wait, let's, let's try that." You know what I mean? I think that's one of the things that is lost. Um, that te that technology has kind of put us at a disadvantage or, or, or robbed us of um, is the uh, the in person collaborative process. That's something that I really wanted to actually ask you about. Recently, there was a tweet that a friend of uh, an artist called Ryan Hemsworth made about working with artists. I think this is something that you have a great deal of experience with. A lot yeah. of people that make beats, you know, right. they just make beats. Or and they just send the beat out, yeah. you know. And that's the thing that I always say. It's, it's like, uh, you know, if, if I send, if I make 10 beats, what do the kids call them now? Send me a pack. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I get, the, you know, that from certain artists and I'm like, bro, that's, not, that's just not how I work, you know. But like, you send somebody a pack of beats or a folder or whatever you whatever you want to call it. They write something to it, they record it, they arrange it, they do whatever they do, and then, you know, the song comes out. You didn't produce that song. You made the beat. You didn't produce that song. In that case, a lot of times the artist has produced that song. Or the engineer. Yeah, or the, or the engineer, you know. Um, for me, uh, when you look at tr uh, just about history in general, you look at the Rockefeller era, you look at the Rough Riders era, Bad Boy Era, Cash Money, No Limit, uh, Tim and Missy, mm. uh, Motown. You can trace this back through you know, Wu-Tang. 
everybody was in the room. Not necessarily always all at the same time, but there was a common roof for them to convene under. There was a relationship. Right. Where as opposed to like, send me the beat, I'll send you back the vocals. You know what I mean? Um, don't get me wrong, magic can be made that way as well. And that's part of the magic of technology that I would not give up. Mm. But I am a very big proponent of let's get in a room. You know what I mean? Um, and at some point in the process of a record, because you, you can't fight it. You know, like we're down here in Austin. I mean, I I I I'm have a mix on my laptop with art. An artist sent me vocals last night. I'm mixing it back at the condo right now. Wow. You know what I mean? But at some point in the process. I like to have that connection of us being in the same room and bouncing ideas off of each other. You know, um, I mean, it's, it's not 2002 anymore. We're not gonna put the beat on a reel and you know spend two days in the studio together. But you know, let's get in the room for an hour and just go over the record. Tell me your thoughts. I'll tell you my thoughts. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll come up with a few creative things. Then I'll go back and do what I do, and you go back and do what you do. Yeah. You know, but I think there is definitely something to be said for uh, that part of the collaborative process. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I think a lot of people need to kind of know right. about that you know especially you know i mean you think about the records that you've made and the relationships you've had with people like jay-z and you know right. cameron and you know these records are incredible and would would you say that because of your relationship with them those are important oh you know definitely because even like i mean i can give you a few examples just of how those relationships affect the records like for example like the work i did with beyonce on, on lemonade you know like she doesn't just give out her vocals to people. Right. You know what I mean? Like, when we started coming up with the ideas for the record, I'm like, all right, well, I need these vocals to take them back home and do what I have, do what I do. You know, because um, she had already had like a demo version of it. You know, if it would have been a lot, most other producers would have been like, no, <laughs> we're not just giving you the vocals. You know what I mean? But it's me. And we, I, I, I had the relationship with her via her husband. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he knows that I have umpteen unreleased records of his that nobody's ever heard before. They and they would never get leaked. You know what I mean? Because it's it's us. It's so that trust. Yeah. So having that relationship allows me to get things that most other producers wouldn't get. Like, all right, send me the vocals. Send me all your stems. I'll work on this. And that helps me work. That helped me work faster. You know what I mean? Because I'm not trying to anticipate or visualize what she might do. I have what she's done. You know what I mean? So it just makes my job easier. Uh, yeah, no, no, having those kind of relationships with with artists and having that in person uh, collaborative uh, time is super important. You know, um, I love. Like I said I love the convenience of being able to email and send links and whatnot. But sometimes you need that FaceTime. Totally. Um, now let's speak a bit about your DJing. Mm -hmm. You know, you started out as a musician, as a DJ. Yes. And then now you DJ. You DJ a lot. Like, right. you, you, I mean, like when I, every time I see you at South by Southwest, you're like, right. Every night, I got to play somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how how much like how do you balance that and production? Like, do you find there's a? It's tough. I actually, um, I. Uh, I actually have started to make a concerted effort to get off the road because um, I'm spoiled. I grew up with ha having baseline. Mm. After that, you know, we had the, the other studio uptown. Um, after that, trying to go from that and having the world and all of your resources at your fingertips to all of a sudden having to mix records in a hotel room 
I can do it if I have to. I'd rather not. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and because I said again, I, I love the advances that technology allows us to, you know, to to have, uh, or the convenience that technology allows us to have. But sometimes you just want to be back in your element and stretch out and just really be creative. And I personally have a hard time doing that when I'm traveling. Um, I, I know dudes who do it all the time, you know, hotel room with some headphones and they bang out, you know, a record that sells, sells 10 million copies. I wish I could do that. I can't. I need the vibe. I need the energy. I need I need the, uh, the volume, mm. you know. Um, so I think between that and then also having my my son recently, you right, know, um, and a father, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just trying to find more of that balance of being on the road and doing what I have to do, but also just being at home, you know. Um, the things I, I I enjoy DJing. Everything that I learned about production, everything that I know about production, the foundation of it all goes back to DJ. So it's not the, not something that I don't want to do anymore. Mm. I just have to get better at balancing it. Yeah, you know. Um, because the constant travel, I mean, you see these bags under my eyes at this point, you know, it's like the constant travel. I'm older now, so when I come home, like, where I used to be able to just bounce back and jump right back in what I'm doing, now I need, like, two days just to recover. I feel you. You know, from a week of, or from a week and a half or two weeks of traveling or just being out South by. So when I get home, I, I need at least two days just to not do anything Yeah. before I can even jump back into any kind of creative space or or just being productive. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about DJing is being able to be in touch with the the people. You know, like, I'm fortunate that I've made records that have translated across eras, genres, timelines, you know, where, like, I could play something I made in 2005 and 2019, and people are still like, ah, that's rare. You don't really get that in hip-hop, you know, and and I'll I'll never lose sight of that, and I love... Having that connection with people keeps me inspired. You know what I mean? Another question, though. When are we going to hear this house record that you've been, you made? Oh, God, which one? <laughs> I, heard, um, I heard on the download you had one ready for Fool's Gold. or We had a whole EP. You know what it was? Me and A-Track, can, we, were just, we were butting heads on the mixes a little bit. And he was right. I mean, he, he, was out playing us, he was out playing the records. You wow. know? And he'd be like, yo, like, the record is great, but it's just sonically. I have to work harder to make it sound good when I'm playing it next to this record or that record. Um, and then kind of just went by the wayside a bit. You know, it's, it's, there was a lot of dope stuff on there. I think it was out of the six or seven demos, I want to say we decided like three or four of them were the keepers. Actually, I'm sorry, one of them is coming out. It is? Yeah. Um, I don't want to put his business out there. He has something <laughs> that he's doing. Okay. That he's using one of the records for. I'll Amazing. leave it at that. Yeah. Um, I actually forgot about that. We uh, we got together a few months back in New York, um, and resurrected one of those records. So he is using it for something, but I'm not going to announce his. Yeah, sure. Thing. Yeah. But um, we can look forward to that. Yes, yes. So yeah, there is one coming. I think which one was it? Is it round and round? Yeah, we're, we're round and round. Renegade boogie. Yeah, I think it was the Round and Round song. Just look, look out for Round and Round, me and H-Rap. It's coming out at some point sooner than later. Awesome. Awesome. Well, just uh, thank you so much for huh, Thank coming. you for having me, man. It's much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you for waiting for me. I know it was a little bit late, but it's... It's, <laughs> it's South by, man. You yeah. Know? It's how it goes. And uh, You're a busy man, so yeah, much appreciated. Thank you for the no, words. No doubt. Any Sharing stories, bro. It's uh, really something. Always a pleasure to see you, brother. Likewise. Salute. Thank you for listening, everybody. Later. Peace.